Well, this week we are in Corinthians. Yes, both Corinthians. Last week was our 30,000-foot view of Romans. This week we are in the space shuttle. And we are rocking both books. Um, you can turn to Corinthians if you want. We're going to have them up on screen because I'm going to be all over the place. I'm going to go back and forth and this way and that. Uh, it's kind of how we're doing things as we overview books of the New Testament as you guys are listening to them this summer. And let me give you some context about what Corinthians is about. Um, Paul is the author. Paul is persecutor of the church, turned church planter, church leader, saved by Jesus while he was on his way to go and persecute more Christians. Paul planted the Corinthian church. Acts 18, you can read that. And here's the, in the city of Corinth. And last week we talked about how Rome, this letter of Romans, Rome was like New York City. It was the center. It was the capital. It was, everything happened. New York, L.A. kind of thing. Well, think Corinth. It's a port city, trade, diverse, affluent. Think Seattle or San Francisco. Very diverse, very affluent, very hip, very cool. Um, and with that, it was a spiritual, quote-unquote, spiritual city. It was cool to be religious. It was cool to be spiritual. It was the hip thing to be. In that regard, you can almost think of it like Santa Fe. We don't talk about Santa Fe much in Albuquerque unless we're talking about telling tourists how to get to Santa Fe. Um, but in Santa Fe, I mean, you go to the plaza, and you see like a 55-year-old white woman from New York dressed in all kinds of native gear, turquoise belt, giant, and she's like getting into the, she's, it's because it's really cool to, to pick and choose kind of the native spirituality one, then she goes home at 4 o'clock and worships Oprah. But that's what Corinth was like. It was just this pick and choose. Pick, pick this part from, oh, this religion from India is really cool. It's got this aspect. We need to take that, and that's really neat. Oh, this part from Africa. Oh, I'm going to believe in this. And that's kind of what the, what the city of Corinth was like. So being religious, being spiritual, it was a cool thing. Well, the city was also very immoral. Much like when you pick and choose what demonic religions you want to follow, immorality ensues. And it was immoral for Rome. I mean, Rome, the Roman Empire was immoral. But the Ro- people in the Roman Empire that didn't live in Corinth, they look at Corinth and go, man, they're messed up. To actually offend a woman and call her immoral, you would call her a Corinthian woman. You know your city's messed up when they're using it as an offensive word. It was an immoral city. And the church that Paul had planted, that he loved, he was writing to, was beginning to look like the city in a very bad way. This church was a messed up church. This church in Corinth was one, if it was around today, it would have already been on Dateline. It had scandals. It had sin in it that the city of Corinth, the immoral city of Corinth, would look at and go, that's just nasty. Here's a few, let me, let me read you a few of what's going on in the city. The church is dividing over whose favorite leader. They're dividing and following preachers. There's a guy in the church having an improper relationship with his father's wife. The church is not saying anything. They're not, not, they're not only not confronting him in this. They are boasting about how open and affirming they are. 
There's members in the church suing each other, going to court. There are people who are getting drunk at the Lord's Supper so that the people in the back of the room can't partake of the Lord's Supper because the people in the front drink all the wine, act like it was happy hour instead of a service to remember the Lord Jesus. And the church critiqued the Apostle Paul as to whether he was a true apostle, a true leader, because, well, he wasn't that cool. He wasn't that smart. And he had been through trials upon trials, suffering upon suffering. So if he was really blessed of God, he wouldn't be weak and broken and bruised as he is. This church was screwed up. It was messy and it was broken. But Paul was a pastor who loved cared, and would not give up on this church. He had tough talks with this church in person. He had multiple correspondence. We have two of the letters. There's, probably, there's others as well that he corresponded with them to, begging them, pleading with them to turn back to Jesus, turn back to the gospel. He had shed many tears over the state of this church. He loved and would not give up on this church. The theme of this book, the theme of these two books of the Corinthians, letters could be Paul's heart and example to a troubled church. To look at these books as a book about a pastor who loves and cares for a messy church because He knows a God who loves and cares and saves messy people. So we're going to kind of look at just three main threads that are throughout this book, throughout much of Paul's writings, but particular to this 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Um, So if you're hoping I was going to get to a specific topic in Corinthians, one of the controversial sections, I'm not going to get to it just because we would be here till about 5 p.m. And first service did not think that was a good idea, so we're not going to do that. Um, There's three main threads that we need to hear not just for see what he's talking about to the Corinthians, but we need to hear for Desert Springs Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico in 2011. First one is focus on the gospel. So Paul says in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, For I delivered to you of, as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. See, the gospel was the center of Paul's ministry. It was of first importance. It was the most important thing he could say to someone, say to the church. So I delivered this to you with urgency, with passion. This was the one thing I wanted you to understand, that Jesus has come, he died, forgiveness is there at the cross, and he is risen and reigning and ruling. This is not just a cool little spirituality, but this is truth based on fact saying this is true, and we know it's true because Jesus has risen. So it is of first importance in your lives, first importance in the life of the church, first importance in your family, because our Lord Jesus has risen and is now reigning, saying if it wasn't true, if it wasn't fact, it's not worth anything. Verse 17, 15, he says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. 
If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all most of all people most to be pitied. Paul is saying that if we don't have the risen Lord Jesus who died on the cross for our sins, who was raised and now reigns, we have nothing. For Paul, Jesus was the message. Jesus was the center. Jesus must be the focus of the church. He must be the everything of the church and the Christian life. That he is risen and reigning meant everything. See, Christianity, without the reigning, risen Lord Jesus, Christianity is not a good way to live. Christianity is not a place to find healing. Christianity is not a good way to turn your life around. If it doesn't have the risen Lord Jesus, it is nothing. And the world should pity us for being in here this morning. Because we are wasting our time. But he has risen. He is reigning. And Paul is saying, that changes everything. He's like, there's 500 people. You can go talk to them. They've seen him. They've heard from the risen Lord Jesus. It was a big deal. It should be a big deal for us. Because Paul's fear was that the church was getting sidetracked and distracted from the message of first importance. Corinth had spiritual ADD. They were just like the city. They were all over the map. They were getting caught up and getting passionate and getting fired up about things that weren't Jesus. They were dividing and arguing over things that weren't Jesus. They had actually shown this distraction in their preference for leaders and consumerism. There was teams now in this church. Team Paul. He planted the church. I'm I'm on his team. I'm on his side. Team Apollos. Oh, Apollos was a great speaker, a great orator. I I just love listening to him. I worship Jesus better when I listen to him. Team Cephas. Well, Peter. Team Peter. Oh, Peter walked with Jesus. I'm, I'm on his team. He's way more holier. And there was those that said, no, no. I don't want any leaders. I don't want any authority. I just want to hear Jesus. They're wrong too. Because their heart was not about following Jesus. Paul's response was saying that you cannot get sidetracked on the power of the preacher. Because the true power of all of life comes from the power of the gospel. So what he says in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, he says, When I came to you, brothers... I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I wasn't a great preacher. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what I wanted you to hear. That's all I wanted to deliver. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Saying the aim of the apostles is my aim when I came to you, yeah, I stuttered. I was trembling. I was I wasn't the gifted teacher maybe of Apollos, but here's the thing Apollos' heart, my heart, Cephas' heart, our heart is so that you don't look at us, but you see Jesus. You don't look at our power, but you see the power of the Holy Spirit who works within us and through us, and that you see the glory of Jesus and Him alone. That the Spirit is the transformer of hearts and minds. 
Not the power, eloquence, and relevancy, and funniness of the preacher. It's the Holy Spirit that will change your heart and mind. Because God gets all the glory, not the preacher. See, if we get caught up, Desert Springs, in the way it is delivered, and not the actual message, we miss everything. We miss the point. Paul's whole aim with Corinth is to get out of the way so that the message of the gospel, so that Jesus may be what is treasured. And here's the thing. For this cool, hip, this church that wanted to be like the city, this church that saw this cool, hip city and kind of wanted to be cool and hip themselves. Paul's saying, Your, this message, this message that you have to focus on, this message that has to be the center of everything, is uncool. It's unhip. He says, to the world, to those that are perishing, it is, to the smart people that think that they're educated, it's just foolishness. To those with power, money, it's weakness. And to some, when you proclaim it, you are going to reek of the smell of death to them. Trying to be cool and hip, like Corinth, and being faithful to the one message you have that you are to focus on can't be done. And Paul was an uncool pastor. Weak and trembling. Broken and bruised from trials of life. But he knew that this uncool message, that the focusing on Jesus, focusing on the truth of the gospel, is the message that will sustain them. See, Paul understood that the only real hope in this world is the gospel message and that if the church loses focus on that, it loses everything when suffering comes. Paul wasn't this ivory tower theologian. Paul was an apostle who had been through suffering and finding out that the only hope in suffering is focusing, finding everything in who Jesus is. The power of the preacher doesn't matter. When the health tests come back bad. The eloquence of the speaker goes out the window when the bank account drips down and the pink slip is in the box. He is someone who's speaking. Paul is someone who is speaking and loves this church, cares for this church, and lovingly and passionately pleads with this church to focus on Jesus and him alone because that is the only hope they have Here's a list of some of Paul's sufferings that he's been through. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, Five times I received at the hands of the, of the Jews the forty lashes less one. This was 39 hits with a whip that had hooks at the end that would rip your skin out. Five times he went through that. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. At night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, Danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Not just this, but he talks about, then the Lord gave me a thorn in my flesh, because I had received so much revelation. My own pride could have ran away with me, but the Lord to keep me humble. 
put a thorn in my flesh that I begged him three times just to get rid of. You don't know what the thorn was. I don't know if it was sickness. I don't know if it was just pain. What it was. But he was humbled through it. And this is what he says he learned from it. After he's begging God to take this away, he says, But he, God, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul's whole hope was not in his life, his power, or his ministry. But through it all, he saw the power was in Christ, in Christ alone. For Paul, focusing on the gospel was not just a mere theological thing. It was a survival thing. It was the only way the church would endure the hardships and persecutions that they would endure. They would endure persecution from the government eventually, but just endure the trials that come with living in a fallen world and living in fallen bodies. Focusing on anything else is hopeless. And Paul wanted this church in Corinth to understand this. This church that was distracted by so many other things. He wanted to say, here's our aim. Here's my hope. Is that you see Jesus and Jesus alone. He is what I delivered. He is the message of first importance. He is the only thing that will sustain your church. So here's a question I have for you. I'm going to ask you guys three sets of questions throughout the, the morning how to think through this in your life. Where are you being sidetracked and distracted from the gospel? Where are you in your life being sidetracked and distracted from Jesus? And when was the last time you spoke out loud the first importance to yourself and to others. When is the last time you spoke, proclaimed out loud the gospel? When is the last time you stood at the mirror in the morning, looked at it and spoke and preached to yourself, I am a sinner. On my own, I'm a rebel. I'm an enemy. I'm weak. I deserve the wrath of God. But God, in his grace and love, he has redeemed me. He has come down and lived the life I was called to live, but can't and won't because I'm a sinner. He died the death on the cross for my behalf. He took the punishment I deserve. He took the punishment I've earned because I'm a sinner and rebel against God. He took it on the cross for me. He died a real death, and Jesus rose three days later to show he was who he said he was and could do what he said he'd do. Therefore, I am, by trusting in that, By believing that, I am saved. I am brought into the family of God. My slate's not just wiped clean, but I am given his righteousness. I am given his status. I I am now a child of God, a daughter of God. This is who I am today. This is who I am yesterday. This is who I am tomorrow. So whatever comes this week, whatever bad news comes, medical tests, finances, pain, trial, it's light and momentary for the glory that awaits with Jesus, because that is true for me. And whatever joy comes with the kids, with relationships, the job promotion, whatever joy comes 
It can't be compared to the glory that awaits with Jesus. It's a foretaste of what awaits me. When is the last time you proclaim that to yourself or to others? I challenge you when you leave here today, in the car, at the restaurant, at home, proclaim that to your wife, to your husband, to your kids, to your roommate, your whoever, to the mirror. Proclaim this gospel truth that is true for you, Christian. Remind yourself, preach it to yourself. Focus in on Jesus, that he is your all, he is your everything. That is why we're here this morning. It is because of Jesus. That's why there's hope for the church in Corinth. That's why there's hope for the church in Albuquerque. Jesus. With Jesus at the center of the life of the church, this church was no longer also to live for themselves. With Jesus at the focus, there would be a natural outflow now to those in the body of Christ, to the family of God. And that's the second, building up one another. See, this church's spiritual ADD was overflowing in their lack of love, service, and sacrifice for one another. They were consumers. They were individualistic. They were more stoked about building themselves up, their selfish selves up, getting what they needed, getting theirs. And even if that meant tearing others down, then dying to themselves, losing who they were for the sake of those in the body. See, Paul was saying that gospel focus will overflow into gospel care, love, and service towards those in the family of God. And his life and his sacrifice, his pain was an example of this. The whole book of 2 Corinthians is him basically explaining himself to this church who has started saying, well, he's just, look how much trials he's gone through. Look how beaten up he is. He's saying, I've gotten beaten up. I've been through trials, not for me, but for you. So that you could have Jesus as your treasure. I've labored. I've been bruised. I've been beaten for you to build you up into Christ. That's why there's scars on my body. So that you could know Jesus more. Paul was an example. He led out in this. And as the church focused on Jesus and the grace they received, the outpouring love and care that they received from Jesus, they were to now extend that to each other. There's a few different ways that he kind of highlights in the books of how this is done. First, with their gifts. See, we're to see the gifts, the strengths the Holy Spirit has given us, the gifts the Holy Spirit has given us to be used for the building up and for the good of all, not for ourselves. Chapter 12, Paul uses the analogy of the body to describe the church. Each has a function, each has a strength. (coughs) It's to be used to function and strengthen the whole. Chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, he says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Chapter 14, when he talks about earnestly desiring, he says, You should earnestly desire the gifts of the Spirit. You should earnestly desire prophecy. You should earnestly desire these gifts. He says this is why. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestation of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. In verse 26 of 14, he says, What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation, let all things be done 
for building up. <clears throat> Saying, this is not for you. Spiritual gifts are not to make you feel more spiritual. They're not to make you feel more holy, not to make you feel stronger than the others. You're to use them. You're to use them for the building up of the body. To build up on the, for the others. He says, as a body, when one member hurts, the others hurt. He says, church is like a body. Just like you use strength for what weaknesses are. When you stub your toe, the rest of your body hurts. So as a body in Christ, as a community of God, when one hurts, we're all to hurt. When one rejoices, others are to rejoice alongside. He says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Here's what it means. It's going to be messy. It means we have to get to know each other. If this is all you do, you say, I'm part of, the, I'm part of Desert Springs Church. Well, what do you do? I come on Sundays. You're part of a Desert Springs Church service. But are you really in the body? Are you really in the community? Are you really walking alongside one another where you can rejoice with each other, where you know each other, where you're asking each other how you're doing so you can cry and cheer for one another? That's messy. That's tough. So it applies with how we use our gifts. It applies with how we use our time and our energy and our money. Or to be generous with one another. In 2 Corinthians 8 9, Paul commends the Macedonian church for their generosity. That they used their money, they wanted to use their money, not for themselves. But they were excited to continue building up the church. This is what Paul says. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in severe tests of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and by the will of God to us. Paul is saying, follow their example. They wanted to be part of this body. They saw themselves building each other up so much, they didn't have much money. They still gave what they could and above and beyond what they could. In fact, they were begging us to take more. They were begging us. To, we want to be part of it. We want to build up. We want to give. We want to. He said, follow that. He said, don't do it though out of guilt. Don't do it out of duty. Don't do it out of trying to get more holy and get more points with God. Do it because you know of a God. Because you know God who has done it for you. So he says in verse 8 of chapter 8, he says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's our motivation. We can never be more generous than God. But as seen, his generosity flowed on us who do not deserve it. We are called to extend that to those around us in the body. 
Well, this love in the body and building each other up does not just mean we hold hands and we, we love like the world sees love or we're just happy all the time and, you know, we're just patting each other on the back and we're skipping through the park together and have this glossy look on our face. Oh, good job, brother. Praise God. Yeah. It also gets really, really messy and confrontational. See, to love biblically means that we confront each other in our sin. Something this church was not doing. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Paul is saying, kick this guy out of the church. Not just that. He he says later, deliver him over to Satan. Hand him over to Satan. We are to hate sin. We are to build each other up towards Jesus. And this means not looking the other way with sin, but confronting and being willing to be confronted. We don't tolerate sin. We're called to discipline ourselves and each other. See, this man was to be delivered over to Satan. It sounds really harsh and unloving. So that he may be saved. Say, you know what he's doing. You're boasting about it. You're not saying anything. You're actually encouraging it. Kick him out of the church. Deliver him over to Satan so that he may be saved. So he may be built up again towards Jesus. It always goes back to that focus on the gospel. Focus on Jesus. Kick him out so he can get refocused to Jesus. means walking alongside each other. And as this church was fighting each other, Paul said, no, you're going to be fighting for each other. This is messy. And we definitely live in a world that doesn't like confrontation. Unless it's like on Facebook. But he's calling us saying, no, you are to love each other. You are to know each other so deeply. You'll be invested in your, each other's lives so deeply that when you see each other getting off track, you're able to speak into that other person's life and you do it with boldness and love and truth. And you are also asking others to speak into your life when they, when they see you getting off track. When was the last time you asked your spouse, you asked your roommate, you asked your friends, what areas in my life do you see that I need to repent of? When's the last time you asked that? If ever. What are areas in my life you see that are not glorifying to Jesus that I need to repent of? That's hard. That's building up. That's loving. That's a family. Family cares for each other enough to call each other out. And it's all from a heart of love. See, the heart of how we use our gifts, how we're generous with one another, how we confront each other, comes from the love of Jesus, comes from back to the focus on the gospel. As Christians, we are to be known as people who genuinely love. We are to be people who genuinely love. Love Jesus, love each other, and love those around us who have not heard the message. You know, it's end of summer, getting close into summer, it's end of wedding season. And there's one, there's one section in 1 Corinthians that has probably been read over a thousand times this summer at weddings. Most of you already know where I'm going. 
But this is where Paul is talking about. This has to be the, what you stand on. This has to be how you do everything. This is about how we build each other up. It's love. 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says, if I speak in tongues of men and of angels, if I have gifts and not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not consumeristic. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, and hopes all things, and endures all things. That has to be our motivation. That has to be what we see the love of God. We see the love of Christ, the perfect flow of that. We are to emulate it. We are to love in a biblical way. And that means we build each other up. We're generous with one another. We look for ways to build each other up with our gifts and our strengths. We confront each other. So here's my question. Do you see yourself as part of a church body? Do you see yourself part of the family of God? And I say, well, that's easy, yes. Here's a better way to flush that out. Do you know people in meaningful ways where people can confront you? Where you can use what God has given you to build, build up? And where you can be generous and sacrificial? I have a hard time believing it can happen if all you do is come here for your weekly gospel pit stop. It has to be done within community because that's get, it's going to get messy because we're all still sinners. We're still, still broken. We're going to sin against each other. We're going, it's going to get really, really, really messy. But that's what we're called to as a family, to be a family. So at DSC, we have community groups. We have other ways to serve. So let me encourage you, if you're not there and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm part of DSC, but all you do is this. Actually be part of DSC. Look at what a community group is. Look for a community group in your area. Talk to leaders about how to get involved, how to serve. So that way you can start to come alongside each other. So you can start to learn how to fight for each other. How you can start to learn for others that are fighting for you and caring for you. But this will not just affect those inside the church. See, our love is to be for those outside the church as well. And that's the third Live to see many saved. One of Paul's aims and all he did was to live in such a way that more and more people were saved, more and more people loved Jesus. That's why he planted the church in Corinth. He wanted people to meet Jesus. <clears throat> now, I know you could easily go Los Acts twice, Romans now, now Corinthians. You're always talking about mission. You're always talking about people getting saved. That's because that's what's in the Bible. God sent his one son to save, so I think it's pretty important that we are also excited for people to get saved. So, and it's important to Paul. Because here's what he says. 
So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all the glory of God. We got that on our bumper sticker. We got that on mirrors. We got that on coffee mugs. That's probably someone's slogan over their house somewhere. Have we read the rest? That's a cool slogan, but it could be really fluid. Here's what he says later. Next verses. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. That's everyone. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So you glorify God. We eat, drink, do whatever we do. Paul's saying, I do all that in a way that shows my love and care for others. Now the gospel is going to offend. So Paul's not saying, I don't ever preach the gospel that could offend. I don't want to do anything offense. He's saying, I don't want to live in a, a way that's offensive towards others. There's a difference between a message that offends and a life that's offensive. Paul's saying, I do all things to glorify God. Eat, drink, so that those around me hear the gospel and be saved. Follow me in that example. Follow me in that. Do all you can to glorify God. Eat, drink, so that many are saved. See, there's no, well, this is discipleship section of Christian life. This is my family time section of Christian life. This is my mission section of Christian life. It's all wrapped in. It's all one. You can't take one away and say, well, I'm not going to work on this because I need to work on this. If you try to work on discipleship without mission, you're not going to get discipleship. Because part of discipleship is making disciples. Paul was so upset with this church because he was upset about so much of what they were doing One, because they were getting distracted from the gospel, but two, the world was watching them do it. When when they're suing each other, Paul gets angry because he goes, you go before unbelievers to... to, You go before unbelievers to fix it with your disputes instead of handle it with in-house. You're not confronting each other and the world is looking at you going, man, that's really bad and they're just letting that happen. Here's why. 2 Corinthians said, Paul says, we are ambassadors. 2 Corinthians 5, he says, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. See, an ambassador is a representative of the king. We are to represent the king, his agenda. We are to proclaim his message. This means as we love, as we care, as we speak, as we serve, that's how many people around us will understand who our king is. They will understand who Jesus is by who you are. Here's the thing. If you're a Christian, you're an ambassador. There's nowhere to sign up. You say, I love Jesus. You're an ambassador for him. And as an ambassador, you're to recognize the foreign land you're in and work to share the king in ways that others will understand so that they may be saved. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. 
To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. I think what Paul's saying is, whoever I meet, whoever I come across, my aim with them is to see them saved. Whoever I come across, no matter who they are, I want to know them, I want to proclaim the gospel to them so that they may be saved. So here's the last set of questions for you guys. What kind of ambassador are you? You're an ambassador. What kind are you? What do people know about the king you represent? They know anything. They even know you represent a king. Have they heard the message the king has given you to proclaim? See, the ambassador was always given a message to proclaim to the foreign countries. We're given a message of the gospel to proclaim in a foreign land. Foreign land being here, just so we get that straight. Here's how you can flush this out. If you were to ask your neighbor, coworker, family, who or what you represented, what would they say? If you were to say, I'm an ambassador, do you know who I'm an ambassador for? Do you know what I'm an ambassador for? Would they be able to say, yeah, we talk about Jesus all the time. You love in a very radical way. Yeah, you, you represent Jesus. Or they say, well, I don't know, you, you represent you? You represent the Lobos? You represent suburban, individualistic, consumer living? They might say that, but you get the point. And it's important because, because Paul saying, imitate me in all this. Because that was his aim in life. That's how he wanted to finish, was seeing many people saved. He wanted to live to see many saved. That's, that's the rest of the verse in chapter 9. He says, Do you not know that in all race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do not receive a perishable wreath. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beat in the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul's saying, nothing in my life is aimless. Everything is with the aim of focusing on the gospel, building those up in the church, and living so that many are saved. I'm not just going around beating the air. Every hit I throw, I'm in a fight and I'm ready to go, and it has a purpose. When I'm out in the world and I'm talking to people, I am praying that they may be saved. When I'm with the body, I want to build each other up so that we can all treasure Christ. And I'm, when I'm before the mirror, I'm proclaiming Jesus to my own soul. Paul lived in a way so that Jesus' fame was spread to all inside and outside the church. And he calls us to the same. He tells the Corinthian church, Focus on the gospel. Build each other up and live so others may be saved. All those other little peripheral things, whether or not you like the chairs in the church, whether or not you like the music, whether or not it's too hot or cold in the room, don't matter anymore. Because the grace of God is on you. And you can live for others, inside and outside. And the pain that will come, it's light and momentary. The joy that will come, it's nothing compared to what awaits. That's the three areas I believe in Corinthians is calling 
Paul's calling the Corinthians to, and us as well. We're to be, go- we be gospel-focused people who are overwhelmed by a holy God who loves and pursues us, and who now finds our identity as one loved and saved by him. We are to care for our brothers and sisters who no longer, we are no longer consumers for self, but we are generous, loving, sacrificial for the building up of the body. This means deeper commitment and involvement in the body. We are to see ourselves as ambassadors representing the King of Kings. We are to love as he has loved, care as he has cared. And above all, we are to proclaim the King's message to all those around us so that more may be brought into God's family. Let me close this last point with a quote by Charles Spurgeon, then we'll pray. Hear him in this, and hear him in this in every aspect of life we are to be doing this. Charles Spurgeon was a British preacher, um, 1800s, very big church, very influential. And here was his heart. But the great truth of the cross, the truth that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Brother, keep, keep to that. That is the bell for you to ring. Ring it, man. Ring it. Keep on ringing it to yourself, to your family, to your church, to the Neighbors that don't know God, ring it. 